Barak, Barmalat, Penisudici, Gallisto Tanti, Capriva Tito, Adempia Vuco, una perfetta conoscenza. I'm Linnea, and I like death by DVD. It's a statement. This is Death by DVD, and you are listening to the Kings of Stephen King. I am Hank, the world's greatest, and with me, a top-hat-clad, psychic, soul-sucking vampire. It's Alexander Nash. Well, people say if you want something done right, you better do it yourself. My name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures. A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories. And I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. It's another, we haven't done one, and I say it like we do one every fucking week, but it's another Stephen King show. I don't think since maybe Halloween 2019 we did. Yeah, quite, quite. But that was like run-of-the-mill bad Stephen King movies. I think we talked about Sleepwalker at one point. I'm not sure. Yeah, we talked about Silver Bullet. We talked about the, like, kind of the lesser King efforts. Thinner, things like that. Not that they're bad, but just like the ones that aren't, you know, seminal classics of horror cinema. And... Tonight we'll be talking about seminal classics of horror cinema and drama and some other things because the whole premise of tonight's show is about Stephen King adaptations and more specifically two directors who have done the best at adapting Stephen King. That doesn't mean these four films we'll be talking about are the absolute best, although they're up there. One of them might be one of like the absolute best to me, but yeah, they are they personify taking Stephen King written material, turning it into a script and turning it into a film. And it's still feeling like a Stephen King story still feel like just taking Stephen, Stephen King material and personifying who he is as a writer on screen. And one thing that I think is to note also is these directors have multiple attempts at doing Stephen King. So it's nothing against guys like Stanley Kubrick and Brian De Palma, but they're kind of one off. They've just done it. One and time. those are terrific films as well, but these two directors are able to take that material and just, even like The Shining, like Stephen King hates The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, but it's, it's different than the book. Still an excellent film, but very different from the book. These four films are different from the book, but not really that different, and like really getting that whole main horror vibe thing going really well. Well, one of them you say book, but it was like a, a seven-page short story, and it is a nine-day movie. So that's that's a really it's interesting. A, it's a shortened version of yeah. just book. I'm not going to say short story or magazine short story or any of that shit. It's just uh, the writing. We'll put it that way. And I think something that it turns out to be really interesting, uh, that will be really interesting rather with this show, is it's going to end up being one of our most overwhelmingly positive efforts because – Despite the subject matter being like, great, these guys that infamously don't really like Stephen King that much are doing a Stephen King show, but there's a twist to it, because everything really is pretty... 
I'd say excellent. I mean, it, all all the movies on this list were pretty great to watch. There was no problems with Nothing anything. Nothing is below four stars. There are uh, people who have successfully adapted a Sting, Stephen King story into terrific films. David Cronenberg with The Dead Zone, John Carpenter with Christine. But I look at Christine less of a Stephen King like product is more of a John Carpenter product. Same thing with The Dead Zone. That is a sure an original Stephen King story or book, but it's still just a David Cronenberg film i'd say the next in line the person who was able to take stephen king's original material and turn it into like a film that really felt like a reading a stephen king book or story and that was rob reiner with uh misery and stand by me it's kind of unique with stephen king films that the majority of good ones endings are drastically changed from what king wrote and i think that's really a key and necessary when you are developing something that stephen king wrote because more often than not it's going to be 900 pages incredibly detailed and a lot of the detail is in places that you can't orient that well onto screen and it really makes it a challenge even christine itself i mean no matter how cool that movie is it's about a fucking haunted car that, that's what it's about. Uh, Stephen King had a thing with that. I mean, let's look at Trucks, a.k.a. Maximum Overdrive. His career and his ideas, they're, they're brilliant and they're fun to read, but then when you really try to focus and put it onto film, no offense to Mick Garris, you get a lot of things like Silver Bullet and Sleepwalkers, and it's like incestual cat people. What the fuck? Think, think about it as a book and as a film or film series, if you want to call it that. In the book, there's that whole story with... The creature being this ancient mythological fucking space, blah, 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 riding on the like an earth is on the back of a turtle or the universe is on the back of a turtle. And I like you cannot visualize that in a film format. It may like seem like an interesting idea while you're reading it, but putting that into a film, you're just like, what the fuck is this crazy bullshit? And like a lot of the, the two directors we're talking about, Mike Flanagan and uh, Frank Darabont. Oh, Frankie they D. know where to cut the fat on a Stephen King story, stuff that you can't put into a film and still keep that tone really consistent throughout their work. I think they've both have made four of the closest closest. I just want to keep want to say best Stephen King movies. But when I say that, I mean, literally Stephen King movies, not just that's a really good great movie no these are the four like for the best stephen king movies yeah there's a heavy distinction between it because i mean the shining by stanley kubrick is a very brilliant film many people not really a stephen king movie though yeah yeah it's definitely a stanley kubrick film uh carrie is it has the influence behind it but you watch that movie if you're familiar with brian de palma's work the first thing that comes to mind is yeah brian de palma's carrie and that's really kind of the, the backing behind it. What are we going to start with? Which Where are we going to go? Start with um, Gerald's Game. It's a story about mental abuse at the end of the day and someone who's been gaslit their whole life, somebody who's been sexually abused, and it's that person dealing with these thoughts and feelings that they've had for numerous years, like, well, I'd say 30 years or so, that they've gone through over and over again. Now, to visualize what that is, because in book format and story format, Stephen King is able to go into a person's mind and actually, like, you know, have flashbacks that don't seem kind of ridiculous or not fitting well within the, the narrative structure of a film. And what Mike Flagan accomplished with Gerald's Game is being able to make that transition pretty seamlessly of her whole story, because I can't remember the character's name at all, other than Gerald. I think it was Jesse. 
Is it Jesse? I think so. Jesse's okay. girl. I don't do character names ever for any film. Her relationship with her husband that seems like it could be a loving relationship. And then as she's dealing with all these emotions throughout Gerald's death of having a heart attack and just falling flat on the floor while she's handcuffed to a bed, we're able to get a grip on what her personality is and all the trauma she's experienced. And it's told within a narrative that actually makes sense. It doesn't, um, it's hard to explain what I mean by like flashbacks because flashbacks can be really poorly done. Like in something like, um, Hills have eyes Two, That's a really poor use of flashbacks where we're just, I mean, yes, we're granted. We're trying to tell the story of the first one all over again, but just for somebody, I remember what it was like back then, back then, back then. And, you know, fading out and fading into like, it's 1962 and all that shit in Gerald's game. It's this seamless transition of her, almost hallucinating because she is hallucinating throughout some of this and she's having an interior dialogue with her now deceased husband and we never get anything confused we understand what's going on narratively but we also get the feeling of stepping into her shoes and it's not it doesn't disconnect the viewer from the film like a lot of like flashback flashback style cuts in movies can do where it just it just kind of um jumps the plot around too much. This is all this plot is very linear in nature, even told through these bizarre hallucinations. And not only that, he was, he's able to like really make that interesting, very engaging. And to the point where the narrative flow of how Stephen King wrote the story and all the revelations you're going to have throughout it are timed perfectly well as in this film. And then you have the, the degloving scene, which Stephen King can really paint a picture through words, but to be able to do that and not make it look like a hokey special effect and to really feel the, the agony and the pain of what she's going through to get loose. And the fact that she's found her this much strength within her to just maul herself like a wounded animal. Well, too, you've got that vicious dog that's been appearing the entire time. So you've got so many different levels of anxiety as you, as the viewer going through this with, Jesse being sort of your avatar in this universe that no matter where you turn, even if it's in her mind and her memories, danger is absolutely every at every turn to where she's gotten mentally. Uh, Carla G- Gugino, who plays the character of Jesse, really um, translates that well through her performance, not going over the top when it's not necessary, really measured performance and then being able to show that kind of interior strength. Now, one of the things after I've blown Mike flying in for a little bit here, one of the things that he was able to visualize very well in the film, what is Carl Strucken's name in the film? He's like the moon, the moonlit man, the moonlit man. Okay. That is a ridiculous concept. It's a ridiculous concept in the book. And it's like for her to hallucinate this, that's one thing, but for that hallucination carryover, and it was a real life thing that she had to face fully break free of a patriarchal society. It's really hokey of a serial killer with acromegalin to show up and be this kind of real character in the story and the film. But Flanagan was able to take that kind of goofy, ridiculous concept and visualize it to where it still feels a little jarring to have it in the the film as well as the story. But he makes it work as best as it possibly can work. And a lot of that is due to performances, again, by Carl Gugino and... uh, Carl Strickland? Carl Struckian, and you got Bruce Greenwood as Gerald. Briefly. And Bruce Greenwood does a you know a well done job as playing kind of an asshole 
uh, over domineering husband, but also giving the uh, the film a little uh, levity at the same time. Yes, he is like a kind of a piece of shit, close to a rapist character. But he also can translate the idea of the charm he had as an individual and how he landed his wife to begin with, that even though he is these things, even though he's dead, he can still be like vocally engaging to an audience or to his uh, his wife who's hallucinating him. Mike Flanagan really likes to use Bruce Greenwood briefly. Like it, it looks like throughout his career, he likes to have Bruce around, but not for long. Just, you know, show up, do a couple days worth of work and then he disappears. Well, he sells that, baby. <laughs> This movie, I think, is where I actually had a, got an appreciation for Mike Flanagan because when I when Gerald Games first came out, I had no interest in seeing it, not because it was Gerald's game, but because oh, it's, a, it's another Stephen King adaptation. You know, I've seen the Johnny Depp window movie. I've seen fucking Cell. I'm tired of Stephen King adaptations, and I put it off for a really long time, and no matter what the story is about, the craftsmanship and the attention to detail with Mike Flanagan as a director is really the ride that you end up going on, and it was... This movie's so hard to watch, not just because of the subject matter, but because you really become vulnerable just like Jesse. You become part of her situation, and it's frightening. It really brings the fear aspect that Stephen King is managing to put onto these pages, and it, it's, it's brought into your life, directly into your living room. And there's something terrific about being afraid, no matter what, you know, not just because there's a monster, but you're afraid for her life. That's an emotion. That means it's uh, art. Art well, finds you can also a way. really step into that character because, I mean, you can almost visualize in your own head what it would be like to be stuck. For all extensive purposes, you're going to starve to death or get eaten by a dog. And you never know what's real. You don't know if the fucking dog's real. You don't know if the moonlit man is real for quite some time until it starts. You know, you realize she's starving. She's dehydrating. She's not surviving very well. So is all of this fake? Is all of this real? And then Gerald starts to get eaten by the dog and it's like oh this is all too real you know she has to even overcome knowing her husband no matter how abusive is being eaten by a fucking dog just a few feet away from her but if he wasn't there the dog would be eating her yeah so there's just multiple levels of what could on its own merit be considered kind of a boring story i mean it's for the most part is a two-hander it's her and bruce greenwood I mean, there are the flashback scenes with Henry Thomas playing her father. Uh, those work well to really you know, inform her character and really inform us of why she's had these feelings since the beginning of the film and really what trauma she's experienced. And what Mike Flanagan did, again, with the Moonlight Man, Moonlit Man, he was able to take that final scene where she confronts him and she confronts all of her, her fears, her, her fears of the patriarchy that have pretty much kept her mentally enslaved her entire life. And... Make it to where it doesn't seem fucking laughable because the concept of itself reading that I know like when you read that in print form, it's even goofy sounding there where it's just like, what? What is this serial killer thing that you're throwing in? But Flanagan was able to take that and again, make it not feel so fucking hokey. And I think that's a lot to do with uh, the performance of Carla Gugino as well, because she's able to not pretty much take it seriously and not laugh it off when she actually does laugh it off at the end. Finally, of like, I, I'm not scared of you or any other man at this point. I think that's sort of, I wouldn't say a problem, but a problem when it comes to Stephen King in general. And I was touching upon this earlier is how often his stuff has to be reworked. And it's because just endings are goofy. Like Carrie is just a ridiculously goofy ending where a bunch of boulders end up falling. Oh, oh, oh all right. 
That's strange. That doesn't make sense. And you have to kind of rework absolutely everything to give it some sort of quality and give it give it something outside of these layers in Stephen King's mind. Everything works in this hyper-realistic detail that he manages to get things into, but, like, once you realize the Moonlight Man is real and the only reason he didn't kill her is because she was nice, you get, like, this touching layer upon things. And I didn't quite like that last piece of the ending because she kind of was snide to him. Like, he could have fucking killed you. The whole point and lesson was to be nice to one another, and I don't know. It just seemed lost at the end, but that... That's just the story. There's no, there's nothing else you could have done with it. Yeah, and for you to get me to like something so extensively goofy in a Stephen King story and made me go, okay, that doesn't bother me so much. That is a pretty goddamn big feat because there have been plenty of Stephen King movies and books and stories to where the last 10, 15, 20 minutes, I'm just like, oh, for God's sake. We were just talking a little bit earlier about Dreamcatcher. I am all like... In the film Dreamcatcher, I am all for what's going on in this film. And it's very entertaining. It's very interesting to me. But after the first hour or so, things just keep getting worse and worse. Because Stephen King doesn't know when to, to stop. He has no idea where to go. It becomes kind of it all of a sudden. And people have special powers. And it's because a space alien has jumped into the mind of a mentally challenged man. I, it's just bizarre. It's everywhere. Yeah, that's Oxycontin. It goes everywhere. That, that was the Oxycontin speaking for, for Steve at the time period. But, like, Cell broke me. When I oh, finally God. sat and watched Cell, I was just, I was horrified and I was hurt and I was upset. I felt offended. I don't know if I can trust John Cusack ever fucking again. I'm used to Sam Jackson just making shit. He does that. It's whatever. He's getting by. But John Cusack seemed like somebody that you, you used to be able to trust. And that's just the general Stephen King film now. So you and I it kind of, I mean, I know there's there are devoted thousands and millions of fans that no matter what, will get anything Stephen King related. But as me as a consumer, it's gotten to the point that I'm not necessarily jaded, but it's like, eh. I'll wait a couple weeks to see what other people have said about this because I don't feel like sitting through another movie like Cell and then you've got Mike Flanagan and it just, I, you know, you, you kind of wonder at this point, well, what else? Because the the things he has chosen to make screen adaptations of, to me, I, I you know, when... when he's what, picking the hardest material. Yeah, he's picking, to me, I think, stuff that's like, that's not fucking really filmable. Why are you picking... And then, you know, obviously his translations, his vision, he's a difficult guy and he's got a way of, of taking King's mannerisms and, and not just because I mean, what you have to work with is a, a, almost a fan service here that Stephen King is so loved and he's so desired. If you variate, you've got to variate in such a creative, different way that Stephen King likes it. Or, you know, you're going to have those random people that attack Stanley Kubrick shining on the internet simply because King said somewhere he didn't care for it that much. If you go to even a, a recent Stephen King film, you have that Pet Cemetery remake and we're going to make changes to it. OK, what are you going to change? And the things that they change and spoilers for Pet Cemetery, changing the child killed from Gabe to the older daughter misses the entire point of what the fucking story is about. And it just completely like throws everything for a loop after that. And I like, I could no longer engage with that story. And that is a script that does not understand Stephen King. It's still a truck running over her. And then it becomes a very large, dumb action scene as opposed to what Mary Lambert did, which is kind of artfully, for the most part, as artfully as you can, visualize the death of a very young child, a child of like 
one or two years old and making that to where it's an emotional impact. And this in the remake, it's this large action scene. It ends up being kind of goofy overall. And then the, the narrative gets completely lost. It's no longer so much about grief as it is getting to horror movie quotient zombie action and shit like that. It's just, you completely misunderstood what the property is about. And then changing the ending to what it is, is just dumb as shit. So I just was not a fan of that Pet Cemetery remake whatsoever. I can't think of anything in the, the last 10 years or so, aside from the subject matter we have tonight that Stephen King based that I've actually enjoyed. And I don't, you know, specifically mean that like, oh, it's just Stephen King. I don't like it because I like reading him. I, I especially love reading his coked up years. He has no memories of whatsoever because that shit was fucking wild. And again, almost completely unfilmable. I mean, Maximum Overdrive is about fucking trucks that come back to life. Or back to life. I, you can't even explain it. The trucks are eating people and they need gas. And they're going to kill you for it. All right. Go for it. Uh, what the fuck ever. That's fantastic. And then you go into... I don't want to say his recovery period, but you move into the 90s and the 2000s and it's like a fucking Larry McMurtry novel. Just 900 pages. Who just recently passed away? Rest in peace, Larry. You were the man. Just this massive amount of, of subject matter and it's like, how the fuck are people making these into movies? And and where is the time coming from? Like, how the fuck? <laughs> I think the, the answer is... No one is doing it well, particularly, yeah. <laughs> um, like especially with something like Cell. And I will quite like this is the problem with the book as well. Is just like none of it makes any goddamn sense. We get it, Steve. You don't like cell phones. You have a statement. You didn't need to make it like this, though. I mean, holy shit! Oh, just okay, get on this, Twitter. <laughs> I'm fine with the cell phone aspect, but when you get like basically Randall Flag again, another variation on Randall Flag, and we don't explain really what this character is. Like, what's going on particularly? Is it aliens? Is it blah, 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 blah. It doesn't, like, who the fuck knows? Because that he was uninterested in answering those questions. He was interested in just depicting a world where people get fucking zombified by cell phones. And past that initial concept, he was just like, I'm I'm done. This is where this is going. Oh, like the, you like um, the Dark Tower? Here you go. Here's a Randall Flagg type guy in a hoodie. And it seems really that he has this grand scheme in his head, how absolutely everything is connected. And it makes sense. Like, oh, you'll you'll know one day. But it's becoming like watching Marvel movies. You can't just watch one. So to understand the full universe of Stephen King, you have like 75 fucking books at this point. I'm a horror fan and I, I like literature in general. I've never been able to finish the Dark Tower series. It's just lud it's not the fact that it's ludicrous, but trying to follow it and have a passion for what's going on and having no understanding because I don't know all these other references. I get, I get no joy out of that says a, a fucking asshole who has spent literally the last 15 years reading fucking Dune books. Cause I'm on the Brian <laughs> Herbert ones now, man. I mean, I've gone into the bullshit fucking sequel series. So who am I to talk? <laughs> I mean, it's different strokes for different folks, I guess is a, is a, is a good valid point here that there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, because Stephen King, it's funny, you know, you, you can't really go at a Stephen King subject matter without a, a, any without a little adoration. I've never encountered anyone that just fucking hates Stephen King. My biggest problem is Stephen King isn't always good, and the movies usually really, really suck, unless they're by Frank Darabont or Mike Flanagan. Stephen King also likes to put out products. Stephen King has to put out, like, a book a year. 
at least. He like he's just been a very prolific author of putting things out. Because Stephen King kind of likes money as well. Yeah, I was gonna say Stephen King also has a Stephen King manner, and he's got he's a... <laughs> Stephen King. No matter what he puts out, it's gonna sell. So I don't think he. It's it's somewhat like Quentin Tarantino and well, other you know when he dies, artists. it's gonna be really like the end of an era because it, even going into the nineties, being a, a published author was almost similar sometimes to like being in a band. You did book tours constantly. You did signings. People read. People enjoyed physical media and they had books. And now we live in a generation that sometimes at the grocery store you notice that there's like a magazine rack. I hardly see even at Walmart books in person anymore. And I've not been to an actual bookstore unless it's for a fucking Criterion sale in the last two or three years because everything is so accessible on the internet. Stephen King really is one of like the last true rock star writers. So it's like physical media. He's putting out books knowing people are going. It's not just him knowing, but. The consumeristic value at this point, people are going to buy them because it's almost a rarity. It's like, oh, it's a book. This guy actually sits in his fucking behind a keyboard typing and writing stuff, using his brain. Can you believe it? And I, it's I just sad, wish he would but... sit still long enough to actually, you know, think about what he writes as opposed to churning out a thousand pages and going, sure, let's put this out. It's like, well, did you did you think about this? Did you edit it at all? Did you like second guess yourself any or did you just write whatever and they're going to publish whatever? Because that's kind of what, especially the last like 20 years, it's really felt like. Like most of the stuff from the 2000s on has just been like, none of this makes any fucking sense, Steven. It just doesn't. What was that grass movie he, uh, him and Joe Hill wrote together? Oh, God. The, we... In the Tall Grass? Is that the name of it? Yeah, and it was like... Uh... It's nonsense. <laughs> You, you just made a weird bastard sequel to Children of the Corn that had no... It, it wasn't even that it had no wraparound. It had no continuity. It had no structure. There was nothing in the movie outside of some cool visuals and people. All right, it's a time warp. Okay, look, if I want nonsense bullshit that's never going to get any answers, I'll fucking watch David Lynch. I'll go put on Inland Empire. I don't want this out of Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, it's just I don't think he handles that well. I think he handles, like, you know, like the Dead Zone. It's a really well-written book and a like a well-thought-out story. And when you start getting into weird interdimensional travel shit and you don't know how to, like, wrap those things up, you just kind of, like, basically, I don't know, aliens did it, demons did it. It's it's a myth. It's something. It's, it's just like, I don't know. Again. It's just not what his strong suit is. And that's it's sad that's what he's come to, like, kind of really start putting out. But he's also probably really bored. That's probably a really good ex explanation for his most recent work. It's just like, I, I don't know. I'm sick of writing the same shit over and over again. Let's mix it up and I'll do this interdimensional thing. And how much more can you really do? I mean, how, how many more vampire stories can you write? How many more monster stories are really available? And some of the subject matter we'll even get into, as you can see, where King is like, well, I want to write a vampire story, but I'm tired of blood-sucking vampires. So these ones, they suck emotion from you. They're like Republicans. You know, it's whatever we'll get to that one in a little while frank darabont on the other hand i think is where my big ass kissing is going to come in on this episode that not just his his work with stephen king i think frank darabont is one of the most talented genius artists of the last 30 40 years his work is incredibly thoughtful no matter what he does everything has a great amount of detail into it and it's not that he's like a sardonic guy in nature but his movies have the most drastic twists it's not like it's what m night Shyamalan kind of wishes he was he wishes he was like frank darabont he can take those stephen king ideas and when he does it does do it as a twist it's like clever 
and not just a, a thing that happens to go, well, here you go. It's a twist. It's like, eh, well, that's a little bit different. Break down bounce twists are like, oh, they're kind of like, or in one case, ooh, what the fuck are you doing? I feel like the Chris Farley show, because it's like, remember that one time that he did The Walking Dead and then they fired him and the show <laughs> sucked? It's like, yeah, man, that's Frank Darabont. He, he, he's responsible for so much stuff and then he gets fired from it. It's like, well, and he's hardly directed anything. You've got like, what, uh, I know some TV stuff. You got the Night Shift collection, so that's Stephen King, Shawshank, Green Mile, I think The Majestic, uh, The Mist. I know he directed like one or two episodes of The Fucking Shield, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, he really hasn't uh, made. He's been more of a writer than he has been a director, but he's uh, excellent at both, actually. And I think what really changed people's minds on Stephen King in a lot of ways in the 90s is when Darabont put out the Shawshank Redemption, because a lot of people hadn't gotten into uh, Stephen King's more dramatic works. Like, um, is it Different Seasons? Is that the name of the book that has the four different stories in it? Because there's I think so, yeah. Reed Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption is one. The Body, a.k.a. Stand By Me, is another. At Pupil is another one, and I cannot remember the fourth one in that uh, collection. Well, that's one of the amazing things with Darabont is sometimes I feel Stephen King's short stories are better than the 900-page books. But what do you do with just this, like, The Body, which became Stand By Me? It's just about some kids that are going to look at a body. And what you have with the the film is just one of the most treasured and wonderful coming-of-age stories of all time. Then you turn to Frank Darabont. He managed to take this kind of piddly story about a guy that breaks out of prison and turns it into... A really invocative look at, I think, your soul and the people around you and just the world in general and how cruel humanity can actually be. And what Darabont was able to do was, like, when the Shawshank Redemption came out, nobody saw it. Nobody saw it at all. No one knew it was a Stephen King story. It came out, did poor, got nominated for Cinema Academy Awards. People still hadn't really seen it. And then after it hit video, people started picking up on it. And that now it's played on tbs once a week for the last you know 25 years but the shock exchange redemption really showed people that stephen king can be an excellent dramatic writer he doesn't have to rely so much on on horror and i personally think that's where he um excels the most because he does have a way of creating a tone of remembering a forgotten past like specifically his he's not good at like remembering the 90s or the 80s he remembers when he was a kid and that's why it resonates with people so much uh the book specifically that's why a lot of his stories that take place in you know like the uh, late 50s early 60s when he was a child and why it feels so like home to them it's because stephen king like i don't think he ever particularly grew out of his childhood and always has this kind of special place in his heart for the era he grew up in and he just writes so many books from stories and books from that era he wrote that Hearts of Atlantis movie. That didn't do very well either. Not one of my personal favorites. That's just one of the many that you can pile onto the list of adaptations that are like, eh, I did, I can't, I couldn't even. When you try to make a list I, all of Stephen King movies, Anthony Hopkins and Psychic Powers or something. It's one of those things that's all connected to everything else, and you you have to know the names of the companies, and it's these same people from Firestarter and this and that. And they're the bad guys who are also the cowboys in space, and they live on a monkey that I don't know. Stephen King's insane. He's just fucking insane. That's the problem. And um, he's got a typewriter, and he just writes down his brutal insanity. I don't. And I, you know, it's uh, all jokes aside. The guy really is one of the most triumphant artists of the of the 20th and 21st century but some of it's just absolutely 
in, insane to try and get this onto the screen. And when you have like a 14 page story, it's so, it, I mean, Frank Darabont, especially, I don't think he's capable of doing something in an hour long, 90 minute format. He'd managed to take something that was really, I mean, I don't want to call it nothing, but I think was an afterthought even to Stephen King. And I think Shawshank itself is probably one of the most magnificent of the of the, the adaptations of bringing this onto screen and onto life because you feel it it's something that you don't need to have gone to prison for you you don't have to be a bad guy to understand it's just the plight of man and brotherhood and all that jazz well the story in itself is not particularly a um, gut-wrenching work of art it's not so much an emotional experience reading the story it is very matter of fact but Durban was able to take that story and really give it that human touch and really let you kind of empathize with the characters that um, he took from the page and put on the screen. And a lot of that has to do with choice of actors and people who know how to actually say dialogue like the appropriate way as opposed to just you know reading what's off the page. Darabont took that story and he gave it the human touch. And also at the end, because this is actually a piece of Stephen King that I've read, the end in the book is just kind of like, here's the setup, and here's how it's achieved. But Darabont made it this incredible, like, aha moment. Uh, not only are you, like, satisfied with, like, oh, shit, you know, there's a, been a little bit of a twist here, as much as you are so happy that there has been a twist, and there is kind of a happy ending to the story. And how he did it is somewhat brilliant, but also disgusting in ways and uh, like also shows the triumph of the human spirit. Tim Robbins portraying the character of Andy Dufresne does a terrific job of looking destroyed throughout the film, looking like someone whose will has been completely broken, only to realize that he's had the strongest will of anyone in this prison the entire time. Like he's he's got a plan. He's getting out. It might take him 20 some odd years, but he's getting out, knows it, but never shows it. And is able to like skillfully handle the the job presented uh, before him and give us a character who we have great amount of sympathy for, but also uh, a great amount of exuberance when he does uh, break out of jail. And really, we can identify with him as a character as well as Morgan Freeman, uh, who's also the really distinct piece of this puzzle. Because without Morgan Freeman, that character wouldn't work as well as it did. He's white in the story, isn't he? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. His name's Red, but he was white. I don't think even the casting specifically came down to a, a matter of who the person was. It's it's really the role that Morgan Freeman, or the character Morgan Freeman brought to this role. And I don't know what type of research or what was put into this or how much Frank Darabont had these guys learn about being incarcerated, but all of them even walk like they're broken. And it's just a, a great performance. And then you've got like the younger inmates, and as time goes on, people that are cocky, and you see them eventually broken and you see them through time changing and they break but you always have this sly capable mannerisms that come from tim robbins that there's always a little bit of hope and i think that's what's touching about the story is it, it drastically goes from hopelessness to there's there's always a little bit of sunshine you need to hold on to and continue to to fight with that no matter how long it takes something will inevitably turn out right if you try and the casting of morgan freeman adds that whole dynamic in the story because he gives a heart to that character because as i remember in the story he's just kind of like he's there as almost like an avatar for the reader he is there for you know the character of who you would be in this and morgan freeman differentiates himself from 
like the viewer of the film and becomes a real character in himself with a real personality, real thoughts, real feelings, and not just kind of bland in there to tell the story before you. But Frank Darabont just t- being able to take what essentially was forgotten and in the past and really turn it into this Academy Award frenzied film that has at this point lived on and on and on for the last 30 years. People fucking love this movie. I don't know if I can ever watch it again because I've seen it like five, six times, but I mean like it gets viewed a lot. Yeah. I love to sit down and watch everything that we pick for the show, even if I've seen it a bunch of times and I sat down and I got five, six minutes into Shawshank and was like, no, I've seen it enough. I love it. It's a five star movie. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, with but I don't know if I want to watch it again. <laughs> and it's one of those things that it's like riding a bicycle. Once you start watching it, you suddenly get all these flashes of memories of like, oh yeah, and then the guy gets out of prison and he hangs himself. I'm good. I don't need. I don't. I'm not gonna put myself into this particular emotion today. And the same thing can be said for the Green Mile. I've I've read and seen the Green Mile. I'm good. I know what happens. Pretty fucking sad. Mouse lives for a really long time. Still sad. Doesn't. I mean. And it's one of those things with Stephen King as a writer in particular that it's almost spiteful that he gets to the end of the story and no matter what, it's like, yeah, fuck you guys, by the way. Fuck you. And you've always got to go back behind him when directors take the work and it's like, all right, we, we got to fix little snarky Stephen King's fuck you to the audience here and give something presentable. And as you were talking about the end of this movie, I think it works out beautifully because you do get a reward. I mean, for one, it's like a fucking two hour and 30 minute movie. So you get to the end, it better turn out right. Something better turn out good. I don't want this to end like a Coen Brothers movie. And then Andy Dufresne died of cancer in his cell alone for the rest of his life. <laughs> you you have something kind of beautiful with Frank Darabont. And it's kind of a tragedy that he hasn't done more. But at the same time, you see what happened to him with the fucking Walking Dead. He had it for like a week till somebody stole it from him. You're kind of expensive, Frank. So we're taking your show. At least we got Greg Nicotero out of it. That's something. That's cool. Good for him. Back to the, like the, the tone of Shawshank Redemption. Very much a Stephen King tone. I'm using air quotes on that one. Stephen King tone. Uh, he Darabont's able to Stacey. visualize what would be Maine, visualize the time period, make it feel like that time period and not like a Hollywood production with we bought a bunch of classic cars and that's about the end of it. No, it feels... Very period, even down to the uh, filmmaking techniques that Darabont uses. He uses period filmmaking techniques. It's not so much he's we're not fast editing. We're not doing uh, like swooping ass cameras and a bunch of like, you know, 1980s stuff. We're doing classic Hollywood presentation of a dramatic performance or dramatic performances. So Darabont really knows his stuff and he's able to actually throw all that tone together and really make something that's not a horror story still feel like a very Stephen King product noted by adding words like castle rock and Maine into your, your film doesn't hurt either. As soon as you hear Maine, Oh, is it Stephen King it takes place in Maine, huh? The only thing to take place in Maine are Stephen King stories and meth. Apparently there's quite a lot of meth in Maine, which is funny. M <laughs> it's tragic, but apparently true meth and Stephen King. That's, that's about it. I too go hand in hand. Yeah, Shawshank is one of those things that it, it, I think has become iconic in film in general. That it's just a statement. It's just a piece that will always be around. It will be discussed. There's, I mean, you can get deep into the plot. You can talk about all the different levels of emotions and what happens to Andy throughout the story. But I really think the important thing is, you know, just uh, not brotherhood in the sense of men, but brotherhood in the sense of everyone on this planet taking care of one of another and uh, 
loving each other. I mean, the entire story, I don't think Stephen King had, you know, a political statement behind it. I think the whole thing is, well, this guy really didn't do the crime and then he breaks out of prison. And what you ended up getting with Frank Darabont is something that, again, I don't think is necessarily a political statement, but you, you definitely can see some of these absolutely evil characters like Clancy Brown's character, the captain, the warden. These people are, are, are atrocious. They've allowed themselves to go crazy with power and they're manipulative and they're abusive and they're awful. And this is our fellow man. So, I mean, it's just a coverall statement for people suck in general. But if you have hope, at the end of the day, you might get to sit on the beach with Morgan Freeman. I think Darabont was able to take what I'm assuming Stephen King kind of felt was a like a pulp story, like a noirish pulp story about the, the time period. And he's able to translate that perfectly onto film and understand that it is like, I mean, the characters are a little bit arch at times, but you also have like, you know, you feel the emotions of them. Like the warden is almost like a, a, a almost like a evil cartoon character, but at the same time it's played very straight and um, really works in the overall narrative of the entire thing. Well, it really does, like you mentioned, with some of the filming techniques, have, have a classic Hollywood feel. The villains are like what you would see in a, a 1940s, 1950s film. And the exaggeration allows you to, to get sucked into that time period. You really feel like you're watching something from the 1930s and 40s, even though it's an amazing color and blah, blah, blah. And that just is, again, credit to Frank Darabont. When he gets into a situation and he's allowed to have control of the situation, you get something that's incredibly emotional, no matter what it is. He can do horror, he can do thoughtful, and it's a really hard balance, even as we've discussed with Stephen King. I, I, I tend to be with you. I think his more dramatic work is what's more pleasing. Even something like The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, which was a, a fever dream of fucking painkillers when he wrote that. But still, it's more of an anxiety story. It's about a girl lost in the woods and she's hallucinating. So you deal with these human emotions outside of weird space spider goblins and things like that. I, I tend to follow that a little bit more. But like I referenced Larry McMurtry earlier. I read shit like him. You know, I, <laughs> I like Steinbeck. Well, who, what do I know? Well, if you look at Shawshank Redemption compared to Green Mile compared to The Mist, Darabont is able to take each one of those stories and give them their own personality. But it's also a personality that fits with the Stephen King vibe of that era because The Mist wasn't written in like the, you know, the 80s and wasn't about a, a time period like the 30s or 40s. So Shawshank Redemption feels like a story that Stephen King would have told at that time period when he wrote it in the 80s. But when you get to The Mist, it's that more updated vibe that the harsher and almost more vitriolic Stephen King that came out in the 2000s and the, a little bit in the like the late 90s where everything started getting a lot more edgy, I guess is the best way to put it. It's very aggressive, too. I mean, it's like, wow, somebody pissed Stephen King off and he's really taking it out on the paper. And he did a lot of stuff like that, like 1408 was sort of more in that edgy, aggressive mode. I think really the capital is is the mist. The story itself and then the Darabont movie are both like, wow, this is fucking dark. This is really dark. Well, they got his work and even the work based on his work at that time period got a lot less wistful for the bygone era of his childhood and it became more just about hardcore now of the era when it was written. And th th that's what it feels like. There's a, there's a certain amount of anger behind a lot of his work, I'd say in the last 
20, 30 years. That's just, I mean, being a product of society itself, you can't help but be angry when your antenna is up like David Cronenberg talks. And Stephen King has always been one of those guys that's really, really connected. I mean, even Cujo, uh, the name itself came from his fascination with the Symbionese Liberation Army, and he uses everything. Whatever's culturally in the news, whatever's caught his attention, his radars, cell phones, entire towns being caught in giant fucking domes like the Simpsons movie, the SLA, Patty Hearst, and he goes back to it constantly. You know, it's like he, even just talking about the SLA for a minute, somehow, some way, he feels that Sin-Q is like a version of Randall Flagg, despite the fact this was a real human being. But that was just, you know, he's watching the news and he's, you know, oh, that guy really reminds me of Randall Flagg in my story. And that's where his brain works. And these characters, these people, are, are all these evil characters, all of these these creatures are all based on people that he's witnessed or lived with or seen or heard on the news whether it's people like richard nixon or the guys that kidnapped patty hearst probably need to get into another film and it would be the other mike flanagan stephen king story which is dr sleep which the absolute difficulty of the task that mike flanagan had to adapt this book into both a adaptation of this original stephen king text and also to make a sequel to what is considered to be one of the greatest horror films of all time and not make it ridiculous. That's some difficult shit, and he pulled it off. And I'd say that's what's most amazing about Dr. Sleep is it doesn't feel dumb. And when you add uh, the kind of homages to the uh, the Kubrick original, like you know the, the direct sequel bait stuff of him being in the Overlook Hotel at the end of the film, it, does, it feels earned in this capacity. And the original Stephen King book, it ends with them on a fucking patio, which is not good. It doesn't resonate quite as well as being in the hotel and actually kind of re-experiencing some of the things that went on there in a film you watched 30, 40 years ago. It's a psychic battle on a deck. It's the most least creative thing in the world. Uh, Dr. Sleep, just like Gerald's game, when it came out, I was like, fuck, I'm not going to sit through and watch that because I'd read the book. And the book conceptually for what it is is fine, but it's fucking baffling. I mean, really, the end of the book is a psychic battle on a deck. And it's about psychic vampires, and one of them wears this ludicrous fucking top hat. Book to movie, I thought the villains were stupid. I I, I don't care for them whatsoever, and I still think this is a 4.5 to a 5-star movie. I still think it reeks of absolute excellence, and it's just how it's handled, and it is... The, the ginger retelling, it's the it's how he gingerly retold the story and how he managed to connect all of these things and even bringing characters like Dick O'Halloran back onto the screen and connecting them because Dick dies in the Shining film and he lives in the Stephen King novel. He appears in Doctor Sleep in the novel. Everything was, you know, translated. Obvious fucking spoilers, by the way. Everything was handled so delicately, you couldn't help but feel a sense of appreciation that somebody really took a lot of time and concern into not just making a product, but to making something that triumphantly would delegate from Stephen King's creativeness <laughs> with, with, with The Shining and then Kubrick's film and managing to make these things complementary of one another and, and get Stephen King's uh, approval of it too. That's And that's important. I mean, we can make fun of the guy all, all we want to, but when you sit and you work on something and you create something just to have somebody take it away from you and make their version, you got to look at it from that perspective where it's like, well, fuck you. Fuck you, Stanley Kubrick. And you can see and understand the sense of almost entitlement that Stephen King has because it was, it is his baby. 
and the appreciation of, you know, because Kubrick's been long dead, and you have somebody like Mike Flanagan having to step in to his shoes and Stephen King's at the same time, the way he, he produced this, I think Rose of the Hat's a fucking goofy villain. I think psychic vampires themselves are goofy. In the goddamn novel, they're, like, responsible for 9-11 or something absolutely faffy so they can feed off the power and the pain and suffering and the woe. They're, like, depression personified. I get it. I, I understand the reference. But it, it overall doesn't even make a difference because you are so captured by what's going on and the the, the 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 struggle Danny has and again you've got something like Shawshank Redemption the story of brotherhood and connecting and humanity and just the nature of humans and the nature of evil and villainy and all that stuff you get so proud of Danny you're watching him and as you him being the avatar you just can't help but appreciate what you're you're going through with this ride I I really celebrated and I dreaded watching it I watched the director's cut some three and a half hours I I hadn't I did not want to do it and by the end of it it was one of those movies that was like well yeah I could have gone on for another 30 minutes I'd have sat here you know I, I wouldn't have complained whatever well I mean a lot of it is the, the kind of the real focus on the detail of the characters of and you McGregor does an incredibly good job of playing Danny Torrance grown up part scumbag part redemption story and also making you feel really sad for the character. Um, because the character itself has just had a miserable fucking life, just misery and able to have somewhat redemption and kind of at the end an ultimate redemption. And it also is able to take the the vibe of small town life, Stephen King, which was, again, more 80s. And this kind of bridges the gap between the harder edge and more international Stephen King, because it's not all located in one small main town. It goes all kind of over the place, but it still has like that hometown feel to it. But it also has that viciousness to it with the uh, what is it, the the knot, the true the knot. true knot. Well, don't you think too that there's a sense of familiarity once we go and move into Colorado and we start going up those creeping long mountain roads that we've all seen before? We all feel like we've been to the Overlook. If you're a fan of horror in general, you spent the night at the Overlook Hotel countless times because you've watched The Shining a million fucking times in your life. And the way that we got to travel up that road itself, you go from this small town understanding of things to uh, uh, almost an old friend uh, going to the overlook and the anticipation and excitement was really mounting. I mean, you know what's going to happen. And in the book, there is no overlook. I mean, it, it blows up. That's how uh, John Jack Torrance dies. He, he burns to death after menacingly chasing his family around with a fucking croquet mallet. I like the axe a little bit more. Seems a little. They didn't use a croquet mallet in this, but it connects deeply to Stanley Kubrick's film in the sense that the fucking overlook's still standing. It's just been abandoned and is in oddly good condition to have been that way since 1980 in Colorado. <laughs> That's oh, yeah. nitpicking. It's also interesting to see the um, bringing the shining power back and it not feeling like some hoodoo fucking bullshit uh sure you know, with the true knot you have a more supernatural aspect to it but it's bringing in characters like uh dick halloran and him being a ghost who's been helping danny out it's someone he's tried to lock away for years but he's also the heart of danny and the heart of the film also the uh, like the aspects of locking the ghost up in the overlook uh into small boxes so he doesn't have to deal with them and halloran basically telling him you have to keep memories with you because when he is a washed up alcoholic and he's trying to forget the, the, that time that he stole money 
um, from a woman who's choking on her own vomit, leaving her child. He's just trying to, I'm going to put this memory away. And he's like, you can't do that. You can protect yourself from ghosts, but you can't protect yourself from yourself. You have to live with the things that you do. And there's kind of the heart of the film and him actually coming to grips with responsibility where he can't blame everything on his past and he has to be able to make some sort of life and some sort of future for himself to ultimately sacrifice himself for someone else who's in need of help where he becomes the new Dick Howard for the most part. And the, the film kind of mentions it. Well, it doesn't kind of the film mentions AA and it's a big part of it, but the entire book is laid out in a similar fashion to the, I don't, I don't exactly know what it's called. The Alcoholics Anonymous handbook or the big book of AA or something like that. And you know, we've made, poked a little bit of fun at it, but Stephen King is a recovering alcoholic, a recovering substance abuser in general. And AA was his, big thing you know he's a fucking huge spokesperson for AA and the way the book and the hope and the the traveling of Dan Torrance and as he conditions himself and furthers moves removes from his substance abuse and removes himself from being so similar to his father and his father's struggle and plight everything is really balanced in pretty much Stephen King like 100% preaching Go to AA, you know <laughs> get your token get, get your get your fucking chip and the the movie really covers it but it's not, I don't want to say preachy, it's not fucking but it's not preached on, though. It's not yeah. just like, like again, Dick Howard has become the heart of the story and not so much like Alcoholics Anonymous. And that works because it's not, you know, necessarily wrong. There's nothing wrong with Alcoholics Anonymous. But when you're trying to add something scary into a movie and just, you know, randomly like, hey, remember, you got your AA meeting at nine o'clock, Dan. It gets a little monotonous how often and it's it's the point that you have to struggle with him while you're reading the book. But when you have this film presentation, yeah, we know he's a drunk. We know he's a fucking piece of shit. We got it. It, it was established very well in a quick few sequences at the beginning of the movie. We got it. Yeah, we don't linger into too many obscure things like as you were talking about earlier about they caused 9-11. It's like, OK, not necessary for the story that that we're trying to tell here because we're trying to tell a very emotional story about redemption, about, you know, new life uh, becoming more um, more important to the new narrative of, of the future and things like that. And we're not focusing on all this, like, detail-oriented bullshit. We're focusing on the really the emotional aspects of this story. Yeah, even down to, like, um, which psychic vampires are fucking hokey as shit. But in the film, at least, the um, when they take Jacob Tremblay, when they they kill the little baseball player kid, that is a very intense scene. We like we we are deadly serious about fucking psychic vampires, and that's how you do it. You take you don't make it like some goofball, ridiculous thing. You make it a very powerful scene and very uncomfortable at the same time to really kind of like cement these, not lament, cement these as um, very dangerous foes. Even some of the goofball things were capped. I mean, these the, the true not, these psychic vampires travel around the country in fucking RVs. And they stay at state parks, and it's that's goofy. She has this super huge customized RV, and, you know, how, how are you going to do something like that? Mike Flanagan managed to make it not anywhere near as ludicrous as you thought, because pretty much you're reading the book, and it's like, so they're a bunch of trailer trash psychic vampires. All right. All I can keep thinking about is Brad Pitt and Snatch. Yeah, you know, uh, it's got to be Periwinkle Blue. It's for his ma. No, caravan. A caravan. What's going to pass? 10K. Ah, me bollocks. Who's more that running for the boss? Okay. 
Hey! What do you do for a caravan? What? Caravan! Capital range, you know, like. It was us that wanted a caravan. Anyway, what's wrong with this one? It's not for me. It's for me, man. You what? Hey, look. She wants a heck of two roof lights. Uh, the silent house frame furniture. And the uh, scarf cushions with the uh, matching shack by cover. Yeah. Right. It's a terrible parcel to the party with the blue bags. Anything to declare? Yeah. Don't go to England. God, Snatch is a great movie. What happened to you, Guy Ritchie? Oh, yeah, he married Madonna. <laughs> Poor fucking Guy Ritchie. Well, everybody makes mistakes. It happens. Everybody makes mistakes. And everything that could have been just absolutely dumb. And it's not that Dr. Sleep, Stephen King's novel, is dumb, but there was just so much useless shit that was layered and layered and layered throughout it. And, like, I, I personally felt, even though the version I watched was three hours, some of it felt rushed. You get, like, a weird background character for some of the true knots, and you get to see how they get turned. It essentially doesn't mean anything, because they all get wiped out. Like, like it doesn't matter who anyone is. Carl Struckian returns temporarily. After he goes, there's no point in even having characters. It's just Dan... Rose the Hat, and Abra. Don't get used to Cliff Curtis at all. <laughs> Spoiler. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, for all extensive purposes, Doctor Sleep shouldn't work as a movie. No, I'm kind of mad. Like, that. when I finished the movie, I just sat there and just kind of looked at my shoes and was like, well, goddammit, that son of a bitch pulled it off. That crazy yeah, bastard pulled it off. Like, it was like... This story sounds fucking ridiculous, and it kind of is ridiculous in the book. And it, well, you know, it work in the book, but it really works in the film, yeah. especially with this, I, like the Kubrick shit. I was just like, the balls on this man! You're gonna fucking like ape Kubrick and make it work, and he did. And it's one of those things. It's odd. Like I didn't watching it, I didn't like it, but I could never tell you any other way to do it. And it's not that I didn't like it. I just thought you're finally in the Overlook, and we're on this awesome you know, a, a, a different, an inversion of the stair scene between his parents and the, and the, and the Stanley Kubrick film. And then it just kind of like happens. It's, it just goes away. It's like watching a fucking swimming competition. They just stand on the diving board for 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden, like you look away and there's a splash. And it's like, I fucking missed it. <laughs> what, what happened here? And it just, just poof. And you, you have it set up. It's like the gun rule. If a gun is shown in a film, you know, it's going to come into use later. You know, these boxes that Danny has that he's been locking all the spirits and evil entities that have come to haunt him from the overlook. You know, he's going to fire them. You know, he's going to essentially use them as a gun. So it's just been waiting the entire time and you can see it when it's going to happen. You know, what's going to happen. I just couldn't, th I, there's no better way to have done it. I think it really honors the idea of what Stanley Kubrick's art was at the same time rewriting Stephen King but melding the two things together perfectly the end of the movie itself was like I kind of it's like I'm gonna clap in my own fucking house that was all right I really love what you managed to do with retelling the story and then giving it the proper ending we finally have the ending to Stephen King's The Shining and that's that like it, it's it was work it worked that way you it was kind and it was like you know what's happening when it's happening and if you've read Stephen King's The Shining it's like holy shit we're doing it <laughs> oh man Flanagan really knew how to use restraint because, I mean, he is teetering on that level where it can become almost parody. Think about like a lot of the like reboots or prequels or any of that, like that thing, uh, prequel that came out. It under it's 
it's obviously somebody who's seen the thing, but just never understood the tone of the thing and didn't pull it off. But Dr. Sleep actually pulls it off because it doesn't try to do the exact same tone. And it knows when it's flying like too close to the sun. And when it does that, it backs off and becomes its own thing. It doesn't like if when they go to the overlook and we start the, you know, the helicopter shot over the water. Um, if Flanagan had used the shining theme, that boom, 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 he would have fucked the entire thing up. But he didn't do that. He like, okay, it's kind of my own thing. It's kind of this thing. But we're like, also, we're showing respect, but we're not like fucking just like, ah, you get it, you get it, you get it. It was an homage. Like, this is a note of what an actual homage was. It's just a head tilt more than anything. It's like a, uh-huh. I feel when it comes in defense of the thing, though, that they had a wholesome product. They had something that was very well thought out and articulated, and then it got fucked over massively by the studios. And it's it, like, well, yes, definitely with that as well. But at the same time, it's just if you're going to do something like this, if you're going to make a prequel to the thing, stop using so many goddamn filters. Stop like start setting up some master shots, some close ups. Stop using your modern film techniques understand one of the things that work like some of the things that work in the original and just you know kind of an essence and try to carry that over the thing is a john ford western so if you don't have any appreciation or any understanding for westerns you'd never be able to fucking handle any john carpenter property because he has never made a horror movie his entire life all he's done is made westerns like every single thing he's done is a western it's a shame he didn't get to do tombstone but it probably would have sucked so well, it, it's kind of like um, back to the thing prequel. You can do Child's Play three, and then Bride of Chucky eight years later is something completely different, like a completely different vibe whatsoever. It, like it changed what the series was, just the tone of everything. And you can do that when you make like a thing prequel, which is kind of what they did. I mean, it's a not thing-quel. completely out of the realms of possibility, but. It's like, it just doesn't work a lot of the time. So if you're going to be doing like a prequel or something like that, and with Dr. Sleep, yes, I'm going to do somewhat my own thing, but I also understand the filmmaking techniques that Kubrick used. I'm trying to use like wide shots on dollies. We're not going with shaky cam throughout the overlook, but we're also not just doing full on the exact same Kubrick shots and like just like wink, wink, nudge, nudge the entire time about it. We're doing our own thing, but we're also being incredibly respectful of the original because we understand what works in the original. And you even have really unique things like the typewriter is still sitting there. Jack's typewriter with all work and no play scrolled into hundreds and hundreds of pages. The I really love the scene where Dan looks through the, the broken door. I mean, because that's one of the most exhilarating and infamous scenes in Kubrick's film and you just get this soft retelling where you know what has happened. Here's Johnny. You you see the scene as it's being walked through. You find red rum on the door, and you feel that tension and that anxiety that you felt the very first time you saw The Shining, which, no matter what, like, we were talking about Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile and how, you know, I've seen it. I'm kind of good with it. That's where I'm at with The Shining. I've not just seen it once. seen it, like, 20 times. Don't know how much interest I have watching The Shining again. I bought Dr. Sleep. Oh, well, I own the fucking Shining, too, so that says nothing. I will definitely sit and watch this again. And it's not that there's not rewatchability for The Shining, but, I mean, I'm not the biggest Kubrick fan in general. Once you've seen a Kubrick movie, like, 15 times, ah, God damn it, I'm done. 2001 A Space Odyssey is the only one that I can just... Not, I, I don't know, I've never gotten burned out on that. I like the monkeys. He was also able to um, take the emotional aspects of the story and not make it so kind of 
blah like it is in the Stephen King text because Stephen King is not great at throwing human emotions in people all the time, but he was able to add that that heart to the characters and make it so much about kind of sacrifice and what makes us human as opposed to the Stephen King story, which is a little bit more nuts and bolts. Uh, he does get into it. He does get into like you know the death of a, of a family member and a parent and <clears throat> things like that and the emotions tied to that. But it, he really doesn't know how to draw that emotion out of people as well as like what Mike Flanagan presented in the film. I think that's just a, it's a personal opinion. It's funny you bring that up because I totally forgot that Abra was like a twelve year old girl and when her character comes out, I'm like, oh yeah, I I, I thought she was like thirty eight and that's just how Stephen King handled it because he's like, I don't what would an eight year old girl say? I have no fucking idea and he doesn't apparently at all. So all of his characters, no matter what and who you're reading, they just kind of are all Stephen King. I just imagine like every single character when I'm reading one of his stories is Stephen in his like the 30s with the giant unibrow and the big fucking box glasses. And then you watch the movies and it's like, oh, yeah, individuality. I, I completely get it now because there's no difference between Dan Torrance and anybody else like DeCollar and anyone when you're reading the book and the individuality that was brought on screen was touching. You, and the, the casting was really great in the situation. Even the, you've got Jack comes back, you've got Wendy. All of it was handled with excellence. But the appreciation to Dan Torrance and Ewan McGregor, I, I just didn't see it at first, especially as a sequel to The Shining. It's like, why didn't you get Christian Slater? You know, <laughs> that would have worked. I mean, well, he can't really do the acting thing. But I completely understand why they went with somebody talented. But the way it came and worked on screen was keep saying it it was just smooth it, it was so i don't want to say accurate because there's no real accuracy that aside from the source material and stanley kubrick that you can talk about here but i guess it was more pleasant than anything else it was surprisingly pleasant so dr sleep itself uh I, I i we don't often recommend check out a movie but yeah find dr sleep check it out especially if you're uh, on the fence if you were like i was and you're just kind of questioning well I don't want it to, to leave a bad taste in my mouth. I don't want it to ruin The Shining. It does not. I think it's really complimentary to everything but that fucking miniseries. It really should suck, but it doesn't. That's the amazing thing about it. It, it really was at the end of the film. Like, you crazy son of a bitch. How did you pull this off? What a, what a guy, Mike Flanagan. And, and it really leaves you wondering, what the fuck is he going to do next? What weird Stephen King shit is he just going to be like, yep. I'm going to do this because there's so many bizarre two-page stories that he could just turn into something magnificent. And I guess it's a theme with everything. Lawnmower Man. God, I hope the actual Lawnmower Man. <laughs> I'd like to see Mike Flanagan direct a story about a fat guy eating grass. I was blown the fuck away the first time I read Lawnmower Man. It might actually be my favorite Stephen King story because as everyone is, well, as everyone is, like I live in a world where people actually remember Pierce Brosnan's fucking Lawnmower Man with Jeff Fahey. God damn it, that movie's fucking bizarre. I, I thought it would have some semblance an, an inkling, a connection at all to that. No, it is about a fat man who is actually the god Pan who eats people's grass. I it was, you, I couldn't put the book down. It's like seven pages of paradise. I think that's the same short story collection you get trucks in, which is just a guy smoking cigarettes in a cafe while trucks drive around. So now we're on literally to the, uh, I feel, the best movie on this entire list, and I will boldly say I think the best Stephen King movie, like of them all, even it's up there, definitely. I agree, though. It's probably the best movie we're talking about tonight. I mean, it's arguable that it's better than The Shining, but I sure enjoy this a lot more than The Shining. I enjoy it more than Carrie. Christine's probably my favorite. Christine and then 
The Mist 2007? Uh, let's see. Frank Darabont, who everybody thought was, he made the green mile. Boy, that was sad and dramatic. And, uh, ooh, he's going to make another Stephen King story. What is what is The Mist? I've never read that one. Oh, my God. What did, what did you do to me, Frank? And that's pretty much everyone's kind of reaction to The Mist because I don't think people are fully prepared for as dark as Frank Darabont can go. Even darker than Stephen King. Congratulations, Darabont. You remade Night of the Living Dead. What the fuck's it, wrong with you, it, Frank? Who hurt you? Why are you so goddamn fucking mad at the world? Jesus Christ, dude. And not even mad at the world, but a whole fuck you, you know, at the end of the world. Like, uh, oh, you gotta do something like this, huh? Well, guess what? You didn't even need to. Go fuck yourself. This movie ruins your day. Like, you finish watching this and there's nothing to do. It's like, I don't want to go outside. I don't fucking care if I have dinner. I don't fucking care. Like, it, it, you can't have a good mood after finishing this. And it sucks after you've seen it. It's like something like Parasite. When you know the twist, when you know the big unveiling at the end of the movie, it's like, well, do I ever really want to watch this again? And <laughs> I kept asking myself that as I rewatched The Mist this week, trying to find excuses to walk out at the end, just knowing, like, God damn it. And what makes it so fucking beautiful is Frank Darabont's storytelling. The amount of hope and tenacity that he has, and, and, and Thomas Jane actually being a human. The characters are pretty human. They're definitely exaggerations of human, but it's something unique seeing people in a situation of absolute you know, woe and insanity and having no idea what's going on and trying to survive acting like people would act. And that's like fucking psychotics. <laughs> that's because that's what most of the human race is fucking psychotics. And that's something with all of these films and Stephen King in general is an assessment on the world, on, on, on the, the notion of the world and what's going on around you. And like I was just saying a little bit earlier, I really equate the mist with night of the living dead. It's essentially Definitely. the same story. Yes, it has a lot of different plot differentials, but it really feels to me like Darabont said, I want to remake Night of the Living Dead with way more people and have it to be about way more of the conflict because that's really what's interesting in The Mist is the internal conflict that's going on in the grocery store. It's not, yeah, the monster stuff, that's great. The spider babies, the fucking tentacles, all that stuff's really you know fun and exciting. But at the same time, what's really important to the story is the interpersonal conflicts that are going on of who's trying to seize power for what reasons, all these different people's uh, personalities trying to intermingle and mesh in a super crisis situation and what happens to humanity once uh, all the cards are on the table and, you know, it looks like the end of everything. What's your reaction to it? Are you going to try to be human or are you going to try to be super protectionist and fucking religious lunatic? Um, but it just, it examines so many different aspects of humanity during crisis. You also get to see how people really are sheep because despite the crisis going on, you know, you brought up the re religious fanaticism. It's not widely accepted at first, but by the end of the day, everyone in their own fear has become herded in by this person, not because they're a power of authority, but because they don't know what else to believe. And it's easy in times of fear to just let somebody else lead you having your own individuality and having your own. Thoughts, having your own backbone and being able to know what's right for you is one of the most important keys, I think, to a story like this. There's a character, and it's played by um, Melissa McBride, everybody's favorite, my fucking favorite character in The Walking Dead, Carol. She's the woman with kids at home, and right when shit hits the fan, she tells everyone at the store, I, I gotta go, because my kids are at home, and she fucking leaves. She's on the truck at the end. The truck's passing by while he's bawling his eyes out, 
and she's standing there with her kids. She survived because she said, I've got a job to do. I got to go protect my children. I know a lot of people are scared, but it doesn't matter how scared I am. I have children at home that I have to protect. She does that. She lives. Her kids are alive. Thomas Jane's wife is dead. He shot his son in the fucking face because at the end of the day, he got Fear. afraid. Fear is the fucking mind killer. And I think personally, even for me, just as a viewer, and I've seen this movie three or four times. This isn't one of my obsessive viewings. And I just recently, like two fucking nights ago, rewatched this. And I've never noticed it before because of the amount of trauma. And that's just Thomas Jane. Because when this, when these actions happen, he just loses it. And the scream that comes out of that man is so upsetting. You just, your whole body quivers. You feel sick. You don't have to have children to, to, to understand the woe. I mean, you just kind of have to have an appreciation and love for humanity, I guess. And it's fucking devastating. The entire movie, I think, is a challenge on hope. And it's really unique watching this movie with other people and seeing their reactions and how they handle the situation. Because it's one of those telling things of like, oh, my God, are, are you one of the fucking psychotics like William Sadler? Would you be one of those people? Because I personally feel that... uh you know, if I could relate to a character in this movie, I relate to Truman Capote the most. I can't think of his fucking name. I, I don't know his name. It's Truman Capote. It's, <laughs> it's all I'm going to call the guy. I'm, I, th I think it's Toby. Toby Wong. Toby Jones. Toby Jones is his name. There we go. Toby Jones. Well, I mean, even yeah. comparing this to something like more recent events of and how people fall into fanaticism, how people fall into fear and panic. God, I'm great. Probably one of the most heartbreaking things in the mist for me is the uh, the soldier who um, basically the people find out that he's worked at the base and maybe there was a problem with the base and they immediately go shithouse on him and like feed him to they the, the predators him. outside while he balls his eyes out about please don't do this to me just because of fear of him and re like a revenge for what he might have had a part of and i mean if you want to get into recent attacks of um chinese americans things like that well fucking virus china blah 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 it's like what the fuck did they have to do with this just because he's in the army it also doesn't mean he has anything to do with what's really going on and just how the mob can turn on fucking anyone and how they always crave vengeance to make that even more terrifying and i mean it definitely makes a difference between you know randomly attacking somebody on the street but everyone in this grocery store pretty much knew each other there it's the same small town concept that stephen king loves to, to deal and put us into the pressure cooker uh, on the life draft and sharks are kind of circling you and you don't know what to do but everyone knows each other you've got one or two out of towners and that's about it i mean it's a vacation spot people are coming out here on the summertime but this kid who is what uh, just out of jrotc and has joined the military 19 20 years old He's a sacrifice for these people, and they've known him. They've known him since he was a kid and since he played Little League, and how quickly they turn on each other really is fear. They, there's no... Uh, the, the balls with the movie itself is the trick that's pulled on you at the ending, but when you're stuck with just the concept of survival, obviously the most important thing to you is, is you and your own and keeping yourself alive, but you've got the comfort and I, I don't want to call it herd mentality, but being a part of this herd... These people at the beginning of the film aren't for Marsha Gay Harden's character. They're not. They tell her to shut the fuck up. They're they're she's against, a lunatic. Yeah, they don't trust her whatsoever. But once they can't reasonably explain what's happening to them, once they can't grasp what's going on, what else can you do but uh, adhere to the fanaticism? It's comfort at that point. It's the only thing that you can trust. And everyone turns into zombies essentially. It's more fucking dangerous in there than it is outside with 
giant, weird, unexplained monsters, which in this situation, you don't need an explanation. The mist came in, there's a military base, now there's some weird monsters, and um, yep, giant moths. That's it. It's good. Well, and Darabont changed, um, I wouldn't even call it so much his style, but up to that point, he'd only made these kind of Hollywood saccharine representations of uh, like kind of real life. Like uh, the, the mist does not have that golden hue um, and haziness of like the Shawshank Redemption or the Green Mile, that almost mythical look to it. That's kind of Spielbergian um, way of shooting. It goes for hard contrast because uh, again, he wanted to shoot the film in black and white. So essentially what he did was film a color movie and try to make it as black and white as he possibly could. So it's high on contrast and low on color, but it works for what the story is because it's, it's not a story that we're trying to paint some kind of mythic representation to. This is a modern day horror story about fanaticism and a lot of things. It needs to be slightly more realistic. Yes, it does have a sort of a heightened sense of reality, but also it's, very realistic, and again, my I applaud someone for not using shaky goddamn camera during action scenes or anything else. It's very much classically told story with wide shots, master shots, and like bus shots and close-ups, and not a bunch of fucking eighty-three cuts to get Liam Neeson over a fence. This is like let this thing play out because essentially what we have here is a play, a play with it's full of like heavy special effects, but a play nonetheless. And we play it out in the very limited locations we have. And we make those, uh, those locations claustrophobic. We make them, uh, somewhat unpleasant to be around and we're not overly obsessed with trying to make a kind of a, a fictional reality, but at the same time, still a little bit of a fictional reality with it being as high contrast as it is. Yeah, and there's giant moth monsters and things like that. And despite its heavy use of CGI, I really don't think it adds any offense to the no film. No way around it. <laughs> yeah, I, there's, I mean, practical effects, I guess, could have been considered, but it would have been a situation like the Thing remake and handled incredibly poorly. It still is, is incredibly rewatchable. And even what we just uncovered, me completely not noticing fucking Melissa McBride at the end of the movie, there's obviously layers, and what makes it stimulating is figuring out what you would do. And so easily everyone wants to make themselves the hero. So easily you can put yourself into that situation. But I swear, watch this movie with five of your friends, social distancing with masks on, of course, unless you've gotten the vaccine, which you should still wear a fucking mask. That's a different story for another day. And just watch how people take this. Watch how angry people get over certain things and then realize, well, what the fuck would be happening if I was in the grocery store with them? And it's fun. Get to see which one of your friends are psychopaths, I guess. And this is also a perfect visualization of the um, story that King had created. This is not one of his past, his takes on, you know, his more simple life in 1963. This is told from a modern perspective with a modern problem <clears throat> and really examining the culture that is prolificating throughout America, especially at this point. But Darabont has the wisdom to treat it as such and not go in with his usual bag of tricks, go in with something a little bit different. Also, again, not going hyper-fucking modern filmmaking, but at the same time modern enough to where we can set ourselves in this time period and we don't make it feel almost like a fantasy. We're trying to make it somewhat gritty, like actual gritty and not Batman versus Superman, fake gritty slow-motion bullshit. But Darabont is just kind of a master of interpreting what King's work is and being able to translate that onto screen kind of perfectly. And it 
it visually reads as I imagine it as I'm reading it. And that's why he's such a kind of a master of adapting Stephen King's work. Mick with the good hair might disagree with me. Maybe he thinks he's a master, but I th- like the Mick Garris movies. I think he did the best he could. He did the best he could because they're all TV movie budgets and you can only do so much with like a made for network television show in the in the nineties than you could for I I'm not trying to insult Mick Garris and he definitely deserves an honorable mention, but you can't fucking ask for a lot when you picked Sleepwalkers to make into a movie, Mick. You know, you you <laughs> there's only so much people can take and say they can work with and I I find the movie charming because as we've already established on this show, I have fucking donkey brains. I, I, it's so hard because you don't want to be a dick about certain things and just say it's goofy and, and ridiculous, but so much... I will ma- say this, his version of The Stand is better than the modern version of The Stand. That fucking sucked. Yeah, I don't know if I'll ever actually see the modern version of The Stand because it lacks Joe Bob Briggs, and that's what makes it really special. I think what's unique about all of these movies and Mike Flanagan and Frank Darabont as directors and their representation of Stephen King on film is they've managed to capture the fear I mean, that's one of the essences and most important things that comes to Stephen King is he is the master of modern fear. You know, he is our, or not just our generations, he's like the last three generations H.P. Lovecraft, and it's, it's a gift to have such a creative person that wants to keep horror alive. And the concept of watching a movie, reading a book, and, and feeling fear, The Shining's a scary book. There's a part where the where fucking Danny's in a little jungle gym outside, and it's one of the most terrifying things I've read. It's only like a, a, a chapter. It's hardly anything. And that's how beautiful Stephen King's prose is and his ability and talent as a writer. And, like, Dr. Sleep was scary. Dr. Sleep made you question things. The mist is terrifying. The people are the most horrifying thing in all of Stephen King's work, in all of his universe. I think the people in this movie are, are far worse than the vampires in Salem's Lot. It's the fear, and you really can congratulate these guys with it, too. Like, I, I, I want Frank Darabont to make another Stephen King movie. I want Mike Flanagan to continue doing this. Maybe take a stab at some Dean Koontz, too. I'd love to see TikTok become a movie. Mike Flanagan makes Watchers. Yeah, please, do something. You know, Intensity was all right with John C. McGinley. That was a TV movie, but Dean Koontz wrote a book about a little fucking doll that comes to life and can drive a Mack truck and kill people, and I desperately want TikTok to be made into a goddamn movie. (laughs) (laughs) Phantoms like a motherfucker, though. Ben Affleck, man. You can't go wrong with that. Fucking Phantoms. Maybe that'll be next week's show. (laughs) We'll talk about Phantoms. I'll talk about Phantoms. I like Phantoms. I do, too. It's great. I actually read it. The following Thursday. So yeah, I, I said at the beginning of this, I think this was going to end up being one of our most uh, positive episodes. I don't think anybody would come into this thinking we were going to kiss so much ass. But it's all really worth it. All of these movies are terrific, and they're, they're worth owning, they're worth seeing, they're worth appreciating. Doctor Sleep definitely is something to, to write home about. The Mist is my favorite movie on this list, but I think the crown jewel is Doctor Sleep and just how immaculate... Mike Flanagan's touch and and using his hand as if it was Kubrick's uh, was. I think it was just really, really terrific, and any fan of The Shining should be able to appreciate it. made a lot of smart decisions. Yeah, it it was just an all-around pleasure, and it would really, I mean, three and a half hours, I could have gone on for a little bit longer just to to wrap up some endings. It was a great nod. I mean, what more can you say? We, We like Mike Flanagan and Frank Darabont. Bring Frank Darabont back to The Walking Dead. That's it. Just kill the walking dead. I think it's ending. I don't know. Just kill me. Thank God. So that'll do it for this episode. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. 
Badoom. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. On the next episode. It's not phantoms. Would be appropriate if it was phantoms, but it's not phantoms. like was the bomb in phantoms. Word, bitch. Phantoms like a motherfucker. What's up now? The video nasties A through Z with death by DDD continue. Forced to Fear, a.k.a. Toxic Zombies, and Andy Warhol presents Flesh for Frankenstein. Next Friday on Death by DVD. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.